Hi, welcome to the Mama Advocate Podcast. This is a safe place for adoptive and special needs mamas to feel less alone and find community amidst their unconventional journeys. Here, you're going to find authentic conversations for me and my guest who are parenting fully in the weeds with you. Our goal is to empower and encourage you to be the best mama you can be as you advocate for your people. Guys, I'm so excited to have Sandra here with us today. She is quickly becoming a sweet friend of mine, and I just adore her. She has done some great work. Um, She is the founder of Justice for Orphans and has written a book that is absolutely amazing called Orphans No More. Right? We're on the right track here. And I adore her so much because she also has a large family and also has um, FASD kiddos. And I think that that just creates a wonderful bond automatically when you have kids that struggle with the same things. And so Sandra, I'm really glad you're here today. Will you tell, I mean, just a brief version of your adoption story and kind of where you guys are today? Oh, goodness. Yes. Brief. Okay. So um, my husband and I have three kids biologically. They're all adults now. Um, And then back in 1999, we um, opened our home to a little girl who was a relative. So we call that a kinship placement, right? We did not have adoption or foster care or anything like that on our radar at all, but we saw this little girl who needed a a safe place to land and we were a family and I was a stay-at-home mom and we just felt like, well, of course, that's what the Lord would want us to do, right? So we welcomed her into our home thinking we'll treat her like one of our very own um, with all the same privileges and opportunities and expectations. Um, and we would all live happily ever after. Um, and we all can chuckle now and realize that that obviously did not happen exactly as planned um, because she was hard. We didn't know anything about childhood trauma or the impact that that would have on kids. We didn't take a foster parenting class or anything because we didn't, she didn't come in through foster care. She, she probably would have headed in that direction had we not said yes Um, So we were ill-equipped. Also, back then, we knew nothing about prenatal exposure to alcohol and would never have even thought of that because her mom was not an alcoholic. Her mom um, was just uh, a professional woman, single in her 30s, was told she could not get pregnant um, and discovered at some point that she was pregnant, in fact. So... um, you know, there, there, there just wasn't anything. We didn't know anything and we didn't, we didn't know what we didn't know back then. Um, so it was very hard. And then uh, several years after that, we felt really led by, to, to adopt internationally. Our church at the time was very involved in missions um, and especially in Ukraine. And uh, so we felt that that's what we were to do. I'd been to Ukraine on a missions trip and we just had that heart to adopt. So then we stepped into the space of international adoption. And in 2007, we brought home a sibling set of three. Um, At the time they were nine, seven, and three years old. Again, we had no formal training, but at that point I had at least read a book or two on attachment and adoption. Um, So knew a little bit, but still not enough, still had no formal training or classes or anything. Um, and, and for some reason, um, well, probably because the Lord knew it was the only way we would continue this journey. Um, 
they just really clicked into our family. Like there, you know, there was, there was, it was, it was exhausting. And I was cooking a lot of food and feeding a lot of mouths and, you know, they were learning the language and it was like that kind of craziness. We were a homeschool family. So I had to figure out all of that, but really there wasn't, you know, the, the trauma didn't seem to be a big thing at that point that just, just, there just wasn't, it wasn't that hard. So we were lulled into thinking we knew what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And then we found out that there was a fourth sibling, biological sibling to the three back in Ukraine. And long story short, I go through all the details in my book, of course, but we traveled in 2010 to bring him home. Um, so he's our youngest. And he at the time was five years old, had spent all five of his years in the orphanage. And he, the second we met him, we, we, my husband and I looked at each other and said, my husband said, what are we going to do when they tell us we have to take them? <laughs> because, you know, he was just, it was clear. And by that point, even though I knew hardly anything about FASD, I highly suspected that that was something that we were dealing with just from his behavior. He was just completely out of control, like a wild little animal. And we were, we knew we were not prepared to, to parent him. So as soon as we got him home, um, you know, we began to try to just that struggle of settling in and trying to figure things out. Um, at one point, I did discover Dr. Karen Purvis's book, the, uh, the Connected Child. And so I dove into doing all of the connected parenting things, which helped um, and, and really worked until they didn't, because once the boys became once. So the youngest two out of the four internationally adopted um, both got diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome when they were eight and six. But the developmental pediatrician who diagnosed them said, this is your diagnosis. You might want to focus on life skills. Have a nice day. There were no resources. There were no, you know, there wasn't a podcast to listen to. There wasn't, you know, so I went home, looked it up online you know, it scared the bejeebers out of me. And I thought, well, that's not going to happen to us and sort of put my head in the sand and and felt like I'm just going to keep doing this connected parenting thing because it seems to be working. Right. And it, like I said, it was until they became teenagers and things started, you know, the train was coming off the tracks and it was clear we're missing something. And I suspected that the something was this FASD piece that I really didn't know as much about as you know, I should have. And I took a deep dive at that point into FASD and started reading all the books and listening to the podcast. And I started taking trainings and just began to equip myself um, to parent our boys who are now 17 and 19. So the youngest out of the, out of the four adopted internationally, 17 and 19, those are the two that are still home. Everybody else is kind of launched and out, but, um, you know, they're the hardest too. This is, I've been parenting for 34 years. These are the hardest years of parenting. So, um, and, and that becoming FASD equipped, um, is, is a, to me, as I, I discovered every foster and adoptive and kinship caregiver absolutely must understand it know it and become equipped to parent and to care for kiddos who've been prenatally exposed because it's a brain-based disability and all of the other things that we're trying don't really work and oftentimes cause more harm than good. Yeah. And I'm 
I think even if you don't know that there's prenatal alcohol exposure that you need to be equipped because often yeah. you don't know lie or yeah. Yeah. You won't. Yeah. Like my first no daughter, idea. I would, you know, she's not diagnosed. She's, she's in her early thirties now, but, um, because of what I now know about FASD, I started to like, look back because she exhibited every primary symptom of FASD. I didn't know that at the time it was just, to me, it was difficult behavior and you know, all of the things, but now that I understand it, I can go down the checklist and I'm like, oh my goodness, she's got like everyone. And then knowing what I know about, you know, her mom, um, and she came to live with us because her mom had passed away. Her mom had um, lost a battle with cancer. So she didn't, you know, I would have never suspected it until I started learning about it. And I felt like this, this is most likely what was going on. And she wasn't born to an alcoholic mother at all. So um, you have to know about it because if you're bringing in children from, from adverse childhood experiences, you know, adoption, foster care, it's highly likely, you know, even if they're not diagnosed, because most of the time they're not diagnosed. Um, they have a whole alphabet soup of other diagnoses. Um, but most likely the overarching one would be prenatal exposure to alcohol is, is driving all of those others. Yeah. And that changes everything. Uh, what were some things that you saw when you're doing Karen Purvis attachment connection, all of her amazing stuff that obviously gives you such great tools as a parent to show up in a calm space and wonderful. Right. Um, and we kind of went down that road for a long time too. And we're like, this isn't working. What were some things that you saw that were like, this should be working and it's not working. I wonder if there's more. Yeah, it was, it was learning because because all of this stuff with 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 the connected child parenting with building trust right disarming fear and building trust and building that relationship with you know through play and um connection all of those things you know giving yeses and and the the empowering part the connecting part um definitely laid that foundation but when things were coming off the rails for us it was it was just this this anxiety that my teenagers were experiencing um very poor choices very um like just a lack of very poor judgment not being able to make wise decisions being very impulsive and having like really not an understanding of how things really work you know in the world and just things that we would think of our common sense they completely lacked that you know and there were the learning challenges at school and the social cues and one you know big one is that dismaturity so in so many ways they were half of their chronological age. So that affected every social interaction um, at school or at church youth group and just everything that we were doing. Um, it just seemed like there was so many things and I could never really figure out, you know, they, they seemed attached, right? We have great relationship, but then there were all of these deficits and everything was hard. Um, and then there were really big feelings and behaviors. Um, it just, just a lot of um, you know, a lot of things that now I understand, you know, are really symptoms of, of FASD, but when things were going off the rails, it was, it was more just, um, you know, my, my youngest son, it was actually during COVID and he was so overwhelmed because he could not 
handle the change in life. So we're going to school. They were in school at the time. Um, and then all of a sudden school's closed. We're home. And then I live in New York state. So it was like, we're closed for a week. No, maybe it's two weeks. And then every week the governor would come on the TV and I wouldn't, I had to shelter him completely from the television because that would have completely overwhelmed him. But, um, you know, we can go back in two weeks. No, we'll go back in a month. No, we're not going to go back this school year. And like with every, he just, he needs predictability. He needs a whole lot of structure. And when that was ripped out, things began to unravel and he was so overwhelmed. Um, and I was, I was afraid that we were, you know, headed for a mental health crisis. And when we put him back in school, when school did reopen in the fall, it was a disaster because the whole day was different and they changed the ways the school day was structured. Our district did that first year after, you know, coming off of COVID. Um, and he could not even learn. And it was very alarming. And we had, we brought him home and, and homeschooled him and we're still homeschooling him. Um, but just learning that just we having to address um, where they're at and understanding how they learn and understanding, um, you know, what a brain needs to do to do the da daily tasks. And that when there's deficits with executive function, um, you know, and, and, and so many other areas that that's really what's going on. It's not, it's not that they're refusing to do things. My, my daughter, my older daughter, I always felt like she was rebellious and difficult and oppositional because it always seemed like anything I asked her to do, she wouldn't do go to, you know, go clean your room, you know, before dinner and it would never get done. She never learned from a consequence. Um, and now I I've come to learn that, you know, these are all things that are very, very common with individuals prenatally exposed to alcohol. Yeah. I'm curious about your other two that you adopted that don't have FASD. Um, do you see things that you're like, hmm, and I, this may be too personal of a question. So if you don't want to answer the, no, this is okay. fine. The four siblings um, now are um, the oldest one is married and he's, 26. He's married and has two children. He's an electrician. He has a wonderful job, um, owns a home vehicle, very, um, you know, loves the Lord, you know, very much into not having debt. Like, I don't, like we can't even take credit for how amazing this kiddo is. Um, and he came to us just before his 10th birthday and he's the oldest and they're biological siblings. And I, it just seems like you know, maybe things were really great in their family, their, their birth family life. Um, but then by the time his sister came along and she was seven, so he was nine and she was seven when they, when we brought them home, um, things were unraveling and they were, had they been in the United States, they would have went into the foster care system. Uh, but in Ukraine, they had an orphanage system. So they were placed in the orphanage, parental rights were terminated and there they were. Um, so she, she's now 22, 22, 23. Um, and while I, you know, it's always like the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So the really difficult behaving kids are the ones that you're focusing on. And she kind of sort of fell through the cracks because she really wasn't difficult, but it's like, she had other things. Like she did have some learning challenges, but it was like, you know, we were able to address it at home with homeschooling. So if she had been in school, she probably would have had extra help, maybe speech therapy and things like that. Cause she, while she graduated, 
she, you know, it, it wasn't easy for her, especially when she entered community college and, and it depended on the style of teaching of the, of the professor, if she could do well or not. Um, she also had a, um, is it a mitral valve defect, a very tiny hole in her heart that did not require surgery. But as I learned more about FASD, there are about 428 comorbidities. So co-concurring um, physical conditions that can are, are often common in individuals prenatally exposed. So not that it causes, not that FASD or prenatal exposure causes someone to have that, but it's, there's a high likelihood that they could, you know, have one of these other co-concurring conditions and, you know, a heart defect is on that list of comorbidities. So it's possible, um, we, you know, but we did not die. We did not go for, we didn't even suspect it in her. We were really busy dealing with the youngest one and then the, the, the youngest two. So the two older siblings were in the orphanage. And then by the time mom um, got pregnant for and gave birth to the two younger ones. She went to the hospital, gave birth and left without them. And they went right from the hospital to the orphanage. So, and those are the two that are impacted. They both have a, a fetal alcohol syndrome diagnosis. They have the facial features, um, small head circumference, um, all a whole list of, of things going on with them that are, that really are the primary symptoms of an FASD. Hey, let's take a quick break. Mama, I know that you are doing a great job, but maybe there's something you've been neglecting, like yourself or your marriage, the rest of your family or the systems in your home, or maybe you're just ready for a change, but you don't know where to start. That's where we come in. Mama Systems can help you put systems in place so that your family is more organized, more peaceful, and more balanced, and so that you feel like you can get everything done that you need to get done during the day. We'll help make sure that you have a plan to advocate for your child in school and in the community, that you take care of yourself, your marriage, and the rest of your family, and that you have systems in place to help build teamwork mentality in your home and make daily life more manageable. All of this is doable and you deserve it, Mama. Check out mamasystems.net today. All right, back to our show. I'm curious, you said the 420 comorbidities you said physical things like is that um, right yeah it could be I, mean, uh, I know what physical is but i just i'm i'm yeah, shocked like, to hear that because i know that there's so many comorbidities and i didn't yeah. know that there are that many physical yeah. ones so there, there it could be anything from um musculoskeletal conditions mm -hmm. like our out of the four that came home the the, the, the my son who's now 19 it's so funny because they came home at nine, seven, and three years old. And then we went back a few years later and the youngest was five. So the one that came home at three years old had severe scoliosis. His spine was literally shaped like a corkscrew. He's had multiple surgeries, um, just very unusual bone, bone structure, very, uh, you know, just different, um, you know, his, his clavicles, the, 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 uh, these aren't clavicles, whatever these are here, the Collarbone. Great. Collarbone. Yeah. <laughs> collarbone. There's a technical name. I can't remember my skeleton um, words, but the, these, these um, collarbones, one is shorter than the other. They're just, just very interesting looking hands and feet, but you wouldn't really know it unless I pointed it out, you know, to you, mm -hmm. but his, 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 his spine was definitely, like I said, he's had major surgeries. He's 19. He's five foot tall and weighs 
um, just under 90 pounds. So um, very, very small. So things like that, um, oftentimes vision problems. Um, and so my youngest um, had to have the eye muscle correction surgery because he had crossed eyes, but also it was discovered that his one optic nerve um, in his left eye is smaller than a typical optic nerve. So his vision is very, very poor in that eye. Um, now, it's not like the ophthalmologist says, oh, because of the fetal alcohol syndrome, this is happening. In fact, you know, I suspected the connection between the two, but, you know, the, the, the um, orthopedic surgeon had, knew nothing about fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, neither did the ophthalmologist, um, but there has been science research um, done with, you know, using a, um, a group a large group of adult individuals with FASD diagnosed um, and all of their co-concurring health conditions and the things that they've been diagnosed with, anything from hernias to um, kidney problems, um, musculoskeletal, hearing problems, um, dental problems, all kinds of things are on there. Um, and it, so it's, it's very common, diabetes, so many things. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very interesting when you start connecting the dots. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this just reminds me how important it is to kind of keep your battery of diagnoses and doctor's appointments and all the things that if you have an adopted child, um, and as you're going to all these specialties, trying to figure out what's going on with them and maybe you're not there yet, but maybe you will be, um, keeping really good records of all of those things because, I think once you're looking for a diagnosis, it becomes so much easier to say like, hey, we know that he was exposed to alcohol and here are all the things that I have that point to an FASD. And so just keep gathering your information yeah. because, because they won't tell hard. you. Yeah. It's still hard to get that diagnosis, even when you have all of that, because yes. it's not a big subject in medical school, from my understanding. I, I, I've interviewed Dr. Christy Petrenko on my podcast, and she um, runs the FASD clinic at the University of uh, Rochester in, in New York State. They have an FASD clinic right at the hospital. And she said in medical school, she read maybe a paragraph on this, and she's a pretty young doctor. So um, they're just not... Um, you know, they're not getting it. I just, just spoke with another mom who actually was a nurse um, in an OB office prior to adopting her kids and learning about FASD. And she said, you know, the obstetrician didn't even discourage drinking alcohol on occasion or felt that, you know, certain times in the pregnancy, it's okay um, when it's not, there's no, no, there's no science tells us there's no safe time in a pregnancy or type of alcohol or amount of alcohol that is safe. Um, for a developing baby. So it's, it's really hard to be able to get the diagnosis. Um, and doc and even, even regular pediatricians aren't, um, I think part of it is the stigma and the lack of education out there. Um, t t they tend to not want to diagnose. I've had a mom who, who has adopted kids adopted through foster care, um, knows that, you know, knows that there was a suspicion of birth mom drinking alcohol, um, and her pediatrician, when she brought the information to the pediatrician, cause her son is 15 and things are unraveling at 15. And now she's realizing it's most likely this cause she sees all of those symptoms and she's starting to see secondary symptoms. And the pediatrician was like, yeah, that's not really a thing, <laughs> you know? So 
you know, or, you know, or the, or the, you know, the, 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 um, counselor at school, all that can only be, that's only diagnosed at birth, you know? So there's such disinformation out there, even among, you know, the healthcare professionals and education professionals who should know. Um, so we, as parents have to become the experts in it and go around educating everybody who's in our kids' lives because they don't necessarily know. Um, but that's why it's important for parents to really self-educate, advocate, learn all you can. Amen. Um, your boys that are, that do have FASD that are 17 and 19, what, how are life skills going? Do you feel fairly confident in just the things that they've learned or are you like, they're probably going to be with us for a while? What are your, what, how are you approaching that? What does all that look like? Yeah. And it's different because every individual prenatally exposed is going to present there's, there's common symptoms and characteristics, but it's, they all present a little bit different. And very interestingly, I know two moms who've adopted twins. Um, One has twins who are 16 and the other has twins who are like five. And they both said the same thing. Like they're both diagnosed with NFASD, but both twins are polar opposites. They present in completely different ways. So you're not, it's not straight across the board in any one way, but my, so my two boys who are 17 and 19, the 19 year old, he's the one who's very small. Um, and because of the, the scoliosis and whatnot, um, but also because of alcohol exposure and he can drive, he did graduate from school, but he graduated, um, not with the general ed diploma, but he was in special ed. So he got a certificate and we, he did go to a BOCES program to learn, to learn welding. Cause he's very hands-on, very, very good at building things, loved Legos, loved anything mechanical, anything he can build, wanted to weld, could weld. What we didn't understand at the time, because I was just stepping into the space of, of, of learning about FASD, um, that dismaturity piece where they're much younger developmentally than their, than their birthday. So he was 17, 18 going off to this BOCES program. Um, and you wouldn't send a nine or 10 year old into a BOCES program with 17 and 18 year olds. Um, because, and, and, and my son was very impressionable, very much, you know, because he was so small, wanted to be the big man right on campus, wanted to be loud and, and, and seen and accepted and all of that. So he got introduced to vaping and then eventually introduced to um, marijuana. And he, this is a kid who was never, ever once in trouble ever until that his senior year, when all of this stuff started happening and we pulled him out after the marijuana incident, I'm like, we're done here because it's five months left to the school year. But if we continue in this direction, because of, because he was prenatally exposed, he's highly susceptible to addiction. And what good is a welding certificate going to do if you end up addicted to alcohol or some drug by that, you know, by the time you graduate. And because he was headed to work for his dad and his dad's construction business, he really didn't have to have that welding certificate. It was great that he was learning that, but it wasn't worth sacrificing him to do that. So we pulled him out of that program and then just basically told our school district, you know, he'll go to work, he'll go to school in the morning for his special ed class. And then instead of going to BOCES, he will go to um, work for his dad and you're going to count it as work study. 
and then he'll graduate. If not, I'll just full on pull him out of school and homeschool him and finish because I've I've graduated other kids from homeschool. So I know how to do it. So they were very, the school was very accommodating. They didn't want to lose him as a student. So they accommodated that. Um, but very, very poor choices. Um, not understanding money. Um, that's a big one. He lost a very large sum of money um, because he had, he was working and he was had money in his wallet, but he did not, he refused to open a bank account. And I kept saying, you need to, you, you know, you need to open a bank account. We need to get your money in the bank where it's safe. And he said, no, the, the bank takes your money. And I'm like, yes, but they keep it safe for you and give it back to you whenever you want it. You know, but so like they're very individuals with an FASD, very concrete. So abstract concepts like managing time and understanding time and understanding money, very, very difficult. So while he has really great, um, you know, verbal skills and communication skills in some areas, um, he could not understand the money piece. And he lost a very large sum of money, like all of his paychecks for over several weeks of time that he cashed and put in his wallet, lost his wallet, lost it someplace he was not supposed to be, buying something he was not supposed to buy. So just not being able to, to really think through oh, I shouldn't do this because it's not safe. I shouldn't go here because this is not a safe place to go. Um, that's where the older they get, the, the symptoms, the consequences are larger because it's not so much that they're, you know, running around outside and, and breaking things or, um, you know, just some of the, some of the things that our kids are doing when they're little and we're wondering what's going on when they're older, the risks are higher, you know, the, 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 um, the consequences are higher. So that was, that's a concern. So he's successful in some ways. Um, he, he's in a much better place now because he's not hanging around the boys that he had been exposed to in BOCI. So that ended, um, and he's now a volunteer firefighter, um, in our, in our area. However, because of his size, he can't go into structure fires because he can't wear the equipment. You know, so, um, you know, he, he'll, he's does all the outside things and they love him at the firehouse and he fits in socially better with the adults than a peer group because he doesn't, you know, that that's where there's a big, and the older they get, I shouldn't say the older they get, I think when they're in their thirties, it's not so noticeable. Right. But when they're in their teens and in their early twenties, that gap socially, they don't fit in with their peers. So they tend to either, they tend to do better with older people. Um, and, you know, and then of course he won't hang around with younger kids because that's beneath him. He won't do that. But, um, you know, so it's just keeping an eye on things like that. Um, my younger son who's 17, he probably won't drive. Um, because although he can drive a lawnmower or a dirt bike, something like that, he does drive around our house. We live on a lot of acres and he can do all that. Um, but again, not being able to make a wise choice about where to go. And also a lot of anxiety in the car when we go anywhere. So most likely he won't drive on the road. Um, and he probably won't live independently, um, because he's, you know, more impacted as the youngest as time went on, I think mom drank more. So he's the most severely impacted. So he has a lot of challenges, a lot of, a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress over things. Um, you know, and again, not making links, not understanding, um, having a lot of difficulty socially, 
17, but really doing second grade level, you know, math and reading, things like that is where you begin to see, um, you know, you get, begin to see those deficits and, and how they're much more noticeable the older they get when they, when their peers are doing things that they just can't do. That, and that gap seems so big. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to know about justice for orphans. Can yeah. you tell us all about it? Oh, goodness. Yeah. So um, JFO emerged really as a result of after we brought our four kids home from Ukraine, everybody wanted to know, right? Why did you do that? You know, so I was getting I was getting invitations to speak at church and other events or even just getting stopped in the grocery store. Like I heard you adopted kids. Tell me that story. And then I ended up one day on a local little Christian radio station and they wanted to interview me which they did a couple different times. They had called me in at different times to, sh- to share our story. Um, and then that led to, hey, why don't you have your own radio show where you talk every week about this adoption and foster care thing? So about by the time that invitation came around, myself and another, um, our pastor's wife at the time, she was they were adoptive parents, had also adopted kids from Ukraine and they were doing foster care. We began to realize everybody needs to know that there are vulnerable children in the United States and around the world who need families. So we just began to advocate for families to consider adoption and foster care. So that's in the early days, it was advocacy. The radio station opportunity came and we felt like what better way to, to rally the church, right? For the cause of the orphan than to be on Christian radio every week talking about it. So we did that for a number of years. Um, and then in 2019, the radio station sold its airspace to a music station and all of us talk show folks had to find new places to go. We had already started repackaging our uh, radio episodes as a pot as podcast episodes, and we were getting great traction there. So we just said, let's just keep doing this because now we know who's listening. People who are intentionally tuning in are foster and adoptive parents who are tuning in because they want to hear from other people, other families on this journey. You know, this is our community. These people understand they get what we're going through kind of thing. So last year we changed the name of the podcast to the adoption and foster care journey so that everybody could find, find us um, who were looking for adoption and foster care podcasts. Um, but along the way, we wanted to also do something impactful you know, tangible boots on the ground in our community. I live in the capital region of upstate New York. So in 2018, we learned about Care Portal, which is in, I think, maybe 30 states by now, including you're in Texas, right? In Texas. Mm -hmm. And we brought it to New York State in 2018 with one county. Um, We now have it in four counties. Our nonprofit, JFO, is running it in four counties in upstate, and we've already served over 3,400 children, effectively keeping many of them out of foster care, stabilizing situations. So we're partnering with county child welfare agencies who identify the needs of, of children in crisis, entering requests for tangible items like beds and bedding and car seats and all kinds of different tangible items. Um, and then those requests that are entered go out to the Um, network of over 50, I think we're up to 60 churches who will respond to those needs, deliver those items to families, pray, pray with families, 
Um, if the family is open, build a connection with the family so that they know that they're not alone and that there's people who care about them. So it's been hugely impactful here. We've helped other nonprofits around the state implement in their areas. So that's that really kind of was a game changer for our nonprofit because it really we had to add staff to be able to manage the whole thing. Um, I continued to speak and continue to do the podcast. And then as I've learned more about FASD over the past few years, we've added training. So I I offer, I became a certified facilitator of the FACETS neurobehavioral model. So I do online and in-person FASD trainings and workshops, um, as well as um, I, we started a, a support group called Hope for the FASD Journey, which I host that support group with another uh, adoptive FASD mama. Many, many people know Natalie Vecchione. She used to host the FASD Hope um, podcast. So we're moderating that group together. It's an online group that meets three times a month through Zoom. And then we also have a private Facebook group where we all interact and encourage one another as well. So just branched off into um, kind of different areas, but at the same time, the vulnerable child is always at the center of everything that we do. Oh, I love it. Y'all are doing such good work. Thank you. I feel honored to know you and to, to be a fly on the wall and get to see all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank I you. love what you're doing there in Texas too. I'm so thrilled that we connected. I know me as well. Yeah. Yay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on today. It's been so fun to talk with you and thank you for sharing your journey with us. Oh, thank you. It was an honor. Hey, I'm so glad that you joined us today. If this episode blessed you at all, would you mind leaving a review or sharing with others? This, as you know, will help other mamas find us and in turn will bless them. Hey, thanks so much for trusting us with your time today.